You're listening to episode 166 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna. And I'm Simon Jones. We're now making steps back into the office. We've sort of looked at our working plans and we're all kind of moving between office and home again. So we're going to be able to do more of these podcasts in person, which will be rather lovely, won't it? Yeah, hopefully starting from next week, we'll be in the same room recording. And I really hope that with more artists coming through, doing events and discussions and writers in residence, that we can actually talk to some of the artists in the building as well. In person, what a... What a lovely thing. But for today, we have a conversation between two people who were definitely not in Norwich. Um, We've been running a whole bunch of residencies this year digitally. So while we haven't been able to bring people down to the Dragon Hall campus in Norwich and put them into our lovely little writer's cottage, we've still been running residencies from writer's locality, wherever they happen to be. And two of them were Nasri Barawi and Vinit Lal. And we're very pleased to have them both on the podcast today talking to each other. Yes, so back in June, we welcomed three writers and translators from Singapore for virtual residencies in Norwich with the support of National Arts Council of Singapore. Nasri Barawi is a literary translator, critic and academic at Singapore University of Technology and Design. And in this interview, Nasri is joined by Vineet Lal, who is our third Visible Communities virtual translator in residence. And Vineet is a literary translator from French to English based in Scotland. And a nice little podcast parallel. In 2010, Vineet was awarded one of the first ever mentorships in literary translation by the British Centre for Literary Translation with Sarah Ardazzoni, who has been on our podcast before. Vineet is our current virtual writer-in-residence until December. Yeah, we'll down the show notes put a link to the podcast with Sarah Ardizoni because it's a really excellent kind of primer for anyone who is looking to get into literary translation. Lovely. So let's hand over to Nasri speaking with Vineet. Hi, Nasri. Wonderful to see you again. Yeah. Hi, Vineet. Uh, wonderful to see you. So, um... Like everybody else, it's been quite a tumultuous year um, here in Britain, and I'm in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and uh, it's safe to say that I don't think anyone has quite experienced what we've all been through over the last, what, 12 to to 13 months. Mm -hmm. Um, And it feels quite extraordinary, actually, that Mm -hmm. things like the ability to speak through Zoom, which no one really was very accustomed to before um, COVID, have suddenly become the norm. So there are probably some some rather strange and unexpected silver linings to the the calamity that COVID has been. I'm I'm sure it's the same for you guys in in Singapore. Yeah, that's right. Uh, For me, because I also teach at a university, so I found that teaching via Zoom was quite interesting because, you know, uh, I've encountered students who usually in class wouldn't speak up, but because of Zoom would become Mm. quite a chatterbox, you know, because you've got that chat function. And so introverted students who normally do not speak up suddenly have conversations of their own. So I I like that nature of that. So ironically, despite the fact that, you know, we all long for that personal contact Mm -hmm. for for certain people who perhaps would have been inhibited in, in in a previous life, there probably have been opportunities afforded by by the pandemic that no one probably could have foreseen. Yeah, that's totally it. I think the polyglossia of it was is really interesting that multiple voices coming at me at the same time. And sometimes that takes me away from 
focusing on a single conversation, but I think it's actually rich. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I was about to say bless you for scoring the 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 first point by by inserting poly, polyglossy into the, <laughs> yeah, into the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll have to have to think of other clever words to throw at you. <laughs> yeah. um, I I actually like the convenience of Zoom because it does allow you to have um, interactions with just about anyone across the world, mm-hmm. including our interaction today. Yeah. You're in Singapore, aren't aren't you, Nasri? Yeah, that's right. I am in Singapore. Yeah. So um, I'll have to fess up now because I was born in Singapore. Uh-huh. Um, okay. Because my 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 dad was there teaching at um, something that was then called Singapore Polytechnic. I'm right. not sure if it still exists. It it's still have... there. Yeah, it's still around. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I've I've been back once uh, yeah. many years ago. We lived yeah. uh, we lived on Grange Road in, in an area which is now I'm sure extremely mm-hmm. fashionable and and very costly. But that was that was right. where I was brought up. Uh, in my early years and I I suppose I I still live with some of the the legacy of that because Mm. moving to Singapore from my parents who are of Indian origin Mm -hmm. was the first time after out of India firstly Mm -hmm. and secondly I think it was their first experience of living then Mm. we're talking about the 1960s and what my mum described as being a truly I guess multiracial or ethnically diverse mm-hmm. community, what with the the Indian and the Malay mm-hmm. and the Chinese elements all kind of coming together. Is that still true of, of Singaporean society? Has it become more, more homogeneous? Well, it's interesting that you raised that. Singapore is having a conversation around the subject of racism and racialism. And so this is quite interesting because what has emerged is this idea of Chinese privilege. Because, of course, Singapore, mm. while being an Asian country, is also a Chinese majority state. And so the concept of Chinese privilege as a parallel to white privilege has come out. And so that has kind of... Um, taken uh, both uh, many sites uh, and, and pushed them into corners that they wouldn't want to be pushed, I think. And so there are quarters that are thinking that this concept is too much, right? It, it can't be that Chinese people have to feel guilty about being Chinese people, which I think is actually a misreading of the concept of Chinese privilege, uh, which actually, if we take inspiration from what privilege means, the idea of systemic racism, racialism, mm. even systemic mm. multi uh, kind of you know, monolingualism that could have emerged, mm. which Singapore has kind of been a, a kind of Anglophone uh, society. Mm. And how, how is it like in Scotland uh, thinking about similar issues? So that that's it's it's really interesting the parallels that you've drawn. Um, certainly here in in the UK and in Scotland in in particular, mm-hmm. uh, we have we have an increasingly diverse uh, community because we are now looking at third uh, going into fourth generation um, communities who you know have been settled here since since the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm. So there is a whole layer of, of society here which who view themselves as being primarily Scottish mm-hmm. but whose ethnic origins of course um, are are far from these shores you know they they lie in in South Asia they lie in East Asia they lie in in Africa um, so it, it's we're at a stage now where Scotland too is having to take a long hard look at, at what the nation is and what the nation represents. And 
if you look at, for example, the makeup of the Scottish Parliament, we've just had our elections and we've had a total of six new members of the Scottish Parliament or MSPs who come from what we call, or the, the terminology is BAME, so Black, Asian or Minority Ethnic. And, and, and that's quite a change to have six people, um, let's call them people of colour, representing um, Scotland within, within the Parliament. Um, and that, that I think is, is, is emblematic, if you like, of the way that society is changing. Of course, some of those markers don't necessarily represent, perhaps this comes back to what you said at the beginning, don't necessarily represent an increase or, or a seismic change or as much of a change as we'd like to see in terms of equality and diversity across, across, across the spectrum. But it, it, is, it is a positive move. And I think what you said about Chinese privilege is a discussion that is also being had here, mm -hmm. obviously not in terms of Chinese privilege, but in terms of white privilege. Right. Um, and I think it's always been there. Mm -hmm. But I think what has happened is that Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And I think a number of other things um, nationally in the UK, mm -hmm. including a recent report on race, mm -hmm. have catapulted that into, in, in, into the headlights. And people are discussing it more than ever before. Um, where, where did the Chinese privilege thing come from? Though was it was was it a was it because of a reaction to a feeling of suppression or dominance by other communities, right. or was it a, an acknowledgement of guilt on the part of the Chinese community mm. that they were enjoying a privilege that they really ought not to have? Mm. Yeah. So I think the genesis of Chinese the Chinese privilege discourse in Singapore is interesting. Uh, I I think personally, my reading of it is that it's really a, a, an instance of the younger generation being a mm. lot more uh, open in their readings, open to mm. influences from elsewhere, not and, and in a sense, influences that are not bad, but influences in which they try to look for parallels for languages or experiences that they do mm. not have the vocabulary for. So I think for the longest time, uh, there has been instances of racism, uh, in 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 Singapore, even even though it is a multiracial, multilingual, cosmopolitan state, but there are instances of casual racism that happens. But mm. it's been you know uh, normalized, and people take it as normal to to have such instances. So older generation think like this, but younger generation, because of their reading and because of what's happening in the world, mm. see mm. certain parallels. And I think for them, it's really a matter of saying enough is enough. We don't mm. want to, you know, normalize uh, such bigoted behavior. And what we mm. want to do is to try to build a better world. And I think that's really the, the where where the in, uh, the kind of inspiration for, for using the term Chinese privilege uh, comes from. Yeah, it, it's fascinating that you 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 used two words there that I um or two expressions which I. I, I guess I kind of understood theoretically, but it's only in recent weeks that things like casual racism right. and my, microaggressions have, have right. come to have a, I, I, I suppose because I've been on the receiving end, I've suddenly understood exactly what they mean. Right. Um, and perhaps we can come back to that. But mm -hmm. um, I, I, we both work in translation. Um, exactly. how, 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 does, how does what you've described kind of issues around mm -hmm. race and ethnicity and cultural diversity or not, how, how do they impact on, on, on your practice as, as a translator? Right. So yeah, I think there's a really strong link in the way uh, things get translated in Singapore. So what we see right now, so Singapore literature as a whole has, uh, has assumed a kind of uh, industry-focused 
has become an industry-focused endeavor. So Singapore, you know, runs itself as prides itself as a bureaucratic state. And we have, of course, mm. the National Arts Council that manages mm. the, the way arts are managed in Singapore. And so part of that managing of the you know, uh, cultural output includes managing translation products, right? That comes from mm. Singapore. And largely we see a lot of uh, uh, vernacular languages being translated into English. So we get a very Anglophone feel or Anglophone output to the kinds of uh, cultural products are, that are getting translated, right? Mm -hmm. What we don't see are cultural products in which the vernacular languages, so when I mean vernacular languages, I'm talking about languages such as Mandarin, Malay, and Tamil, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. even other Indian languages, including Hindi, for instance, mm -hmm. get translated mm -hmm. across between the vernacular languages. So, so we see that uh, what this means is that that Singapore becomes increasingly an Anglophone society that reads, uh, uh, you know, products that are in their mother tongue in English. So even people who actually speak the mother tongue would be more comfortable speaking in English these days. And so that's a problem. And the problem is that we are losing our mastery of our mother tongues in that sense. So, uh, so I'm, I'm part of that machinery, actually, because I translate, translate primarily from Malay language to English. And so I, I am guilty of, you know, doing that. Uh, but I can't help it because I'm more expressive in English than I am in my mother tongue. Yeah. So that, that's a fascinating um, statement or, or discussion, I, I, I think, Nasri, because uh. I, I think I share with you some of those concerns. But to what extent are neither you or I to blame? Because the fact that you and I are conversing in English right. and the fact that you and I are, are most at ease in this language isn't isn't of our making, I guess, to be honest with you. It, it's the result of, gosh, it's the result of history, isn't it? It's the result of, of hundreds yeah. of years yeah. of, well, shall we say empire or, or colonialism? Would that, yeah. would that be too inflammatory to say that? I, no, I think not, it's true, not at all. Uh, in my case, certainly it's a product of uh, English mm. colonization in Southeast Asia. Mm. And certainly because you are based in the UK, I suppose, um, Scotland itself would be a colony of England. <laughs> I, there's an expression that a lot of BAME communities use here when subjected to yeah. what you said earlier, microaggressions or casual racism. Mm -hmm. And the stat, that statement is, is quite a pithy one. It is, we are here because you were there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's totally true. So the reason that, that my parents came to Scotland mm -hmm. I suppose it's tied up with what we just said about language because my dad was educated in Scotland right. and he came to Scotland because of India's links with the colony. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, his father would never have thought to send him to the UK. That's but because English was a language, a kind of a lingua franca, That's um, right. then, then it became, you know, a root. So mm -hmm. it's hardly surprising, is it not, that, that yeah. the, the, the countries that were former mm -hmm. um you know, um, had empires and colonies right. have, have have now become those countries where there are large communities mm -hmm. of of um, of you know from those from those former colonies. That's but right. but 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 do you think that the the issue that you've described is one is one that that that's peculiar to Singapore? Because I'm thinking about India, for example, where I'm very conscious that a bit like you described mm -hmm. the the social pressure to speak English right. and the and the ability to speak English being linked to advancement, advancement in education, advancement in your career, social advancement, let's be honest about it, right. 
places a prestige and a value on the mastery of English, which therefore contributes to the um, to the to, to the lower profile and the increasingly lower profile of vernacular languages. Are are we? Is is that the number of the problem? And are you and I both guilty of being part of that? Yeah, I certainly think that there's a similar situation that exists in Singapore. Um, a must. I mean. At, for you to find a job and flourish in Singapore, but or even survive, you need to at least have a working uh, understanding of how to speak English, because of course we are an Anglophone society. And the, the ironic ironic thing there is that sometimes uh, Singaporean students living in, as an Anglophone speaker and reader, when they apply for uh, you know jobs uh, or even mm-hmm. to study overseas, they are not seen as an Anglophone speaker. Right, and so they might have to take uh, tests, uh, English tests, to prove that they are Anglophone speakers. So here in lies the irony of Singapore being an Anglophone society within, but then outside of that, not being recognized by the you know centers of uh, you know English language, uh, you know such as the US or the UK. Uh, right. So 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 it's almost as if there's a, an 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 um, inherent racism between Englishes then, a hierarchy of Englishes, is that what you're saying? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested in uh, how things are for you as a translator and what languages you translate from and how this might factor into your work. I, 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 I'm probably um, not the best example because I don't translate, um, unlike yourself, I don't translate from what is called here heritage language. So as I said earlier, I am of, of Indian, of... Indian South Asian origin, and therefore, I do have um, vernacular languages that I'm comfortable with speaking at home. Uh, in my case, there is um, there's Hindi, um, not really Hindi, I suppose, because in its pure form, Hindi is not something I would perhaps even understand. But but this 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 strange hybrid that's that's developed over over the decades of Hindi and Urdu, a kind of a Hindustani mix. Right. Um, which is the language of popular culture in India. It's the language of, of Bollywood cinema. So that's the language I speak at home. Um, uh, and then the, I also have a regional language, which is Punjabi, because mm-hmm. my parents are from that state right. uh, in India. So I have those languages under my belt as, as conversant languages mm-hmm. for the domestic environment. And this is the interesting thing. When it comes to translation, I don't translate from them. And I think the reason I don't translate from them is, is multiple. Uh-huh. I, I, I think at, 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 at the most base level is to do with confidence and to do with um, validity and to do with um, um, almost the, um, the, the credibility that I, I self-impose on myself as a translator. Mm-hmm. And, and because not, none of those languages are ones I've studied at school or academically or I have qualifications in, right. I don't feel empowered. Okay. But when it comes to um, French, which is the language I do translate from, mm-hmm. things are very different because I it's it's a language I, I I I studied at school and then at university and then did a degree and then a postgraduate degree. So I almost feel as if I have validated or earned my um, I could say your right to translate from that language simply because I can claim a certain understanding mm-hmm. of how the language is structured and, and how it works. And, and I have a certain fluency because I interpret in both mm-hmm. directions as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one of the reasons. I guess the other, 
Uh, some of the other reasons are, apart from the academic validity, is that a lot of these languages just don't have the status that, that, would, that would pull me towards them as being languages that I feel absolutely I have to get a grip on because so many other people are translating from it. It's, it's curious, isn't it, that some languages in translation acquire a greater prestige mm -hmm. and are talked about, whereas I think it's true of vernacular languages like, mm -hmm. well, the ones that you mentioned earlier, they just don't seem to have cut through, do they, on, on the world stage? Yeah. No, not not as much, uh, not as much prestige uh, when you do translate from certain languages or translate into certain languages. Yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Go so, ahead. so that so so that makes that makes it quite quite um quite a complex thing. Yeah. And then there's something very subtle here, and 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 I'll see if I can get my head around this. And it goes back to what we were saying about racism mm -hmm. and diversity. So, um, I th I think when you are somebody of color. Mm -hmm. um, you are very conscious of people viewing you through that lens. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I find what's really helpful about translating from French, mm -hmm. even though it is true, but people forget this, that a large, mm -hmm. a large percentage of the Francophone contingent across the globe right. are not white speakers of French. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. But put that to one side. Mm -hmm. The fact that I translate from French, I find helpful because mm -hmm. it's not linked to my ethnicity in any in any way whatsoever, because mm -hmm. it's an acquired language. Right. And therefore, I almost feel as if my my authority or my my license to translate from that isn't, no pun intended, colored by the fact that mm -hmm. I'm of South Asian origin, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So there's an expectation. Mm -hmm. As there is, I think, laid on many BAME mm -hmm. uh, communities, that mm -hmm. if you work as a translator, you will translate from that language. Right. And the fact that I don't, for me, mm -hmm. I find quite liberating. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I, and I, I find it fascinating because I haven't heard of a, a, such a viewpoint. And I, I, I understand it now better. I mean, like, um, uh, because I have met translators who are based in... Uh, you know, the UK or the US who are not translating from their mother tongue languages. And the reasons mm -hmm. you outline really uh, give me a, a, a kind of like, uh, you know, better understanding of, you know, why people made that choice. I wanted to ask you though, when you do decide to translate from France to, I mean, you do, you do that, mm -hmm. but do you mm -hmm. face any uh, form of pushback from your publishers in terms of what they expect you to to translate and whether they think that you are even uh, fit to translate certain texts when you propose works or something like that? Um, really interesting question. Mm -hmm. I, I I suppose, honestly, I don't know because I, I would like to think mm -hmm. that, that that when I when I do a piece of work, it's 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 not, as I said, linked to mm -hmm. um, to where I'm from or or my ethnic origins. It's all based on my ability um, and and that i think is a great leveler to be considered on the basis of your ability not right. given not given a privilege in any way because you're black mm -hmm. but but on this by the same token not not given the same privilege because you're a black or, or asian so right. i would like right. to think that the playing field is level and i think mm -hmm. sometimes to be honest with you it's only by imagining parity that you can actually forge ahead because otherwise you might end up forever being conditioned by some kind of complex that you're not making your way mm -hmm in your field for X or X or Y reasons. Um, I, 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 I would like to think that the playing field is as level as, as it can be. Mm -hmm. 
I do sometimes worry that when people see my name, they might think that this person um, perhaps isn't, um, um, doesn't have English as, as their mother tongue. So that, that potentially could, could, could be an issue. Um, um, and, and, I, and I do worry sometimes that people might think that, um, that being a BAME translator, um, that I would only wish to, 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 to work on texts which have some kind of um, colonial aspect to them or some kind of setting right. the world to rights element to them. And, and, mm. and nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. I, I, like, I, like, I like an interesting piece of work regardless of, of what it is so mm-hmm. um in in recent you know in recent months i've been working on mm-hmm. well, quite different pieces of you know of, of fiction in my case you know um, a narrative written from a woman's point of view mm-hmm. um i'm currently working on, on a piece of crime fiction right. um, i've done i've done quite a few um pieces for children so short stories mm-hmm. um a couple of picture books so mm-hmm. all of that i think illustrates the fact that um mm-hmm. In my case, mm-hmm. I don't view where I come from as being mm-hmm. an impediment to doing the job that I've been asked to do. Right. And I remember someone saying to me once that being a literary translator is like being a, a ventriloquist that you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to assume so many voices. And that's what I that's probably what I find quite um, or, or or the most thrilling about about the job that that, that we do. I, I I suppose you're right in as much that if I were given a project that was about translating from French from a South Asian writer in mm. Pondicherry, then I would be probably super qualified to do that because on the one hand I'd have the language element, mm-hmm. but I would also have the the cultural element. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not going to happen very often. Right, right. You're right there. Yeah, I think your case and my case are slightly different by way of context. And for me, the reason why I translate from Malay into English is because there is an absence of, uh, I mean, I feel like there is an absence of Malay languages text mm. in the world out there. So I'm, I'm also mm. uh, a scholar, I'm a, um, not scholar, I mean, I teach in a university, I'm a researcher, I'm a comparative literature researcher. So mm. I, I go to a lot of annual conventions and when I speak to other comparative literature scholars, I do notice a lacuna in the in the way you know uh, they talk about literature. So certain certain regions and certain um, languages are more represented than others, and and a major part of that uh, absence is the the Malay language. So while while doing my PhD, I did not actually do Malay studies, but since mm-hmm. coming back from the PhD um, back to Singapore, teaching in Singapore, I was kind of led into doing more and more Malay study, Malay literary studies. And in fact, that's also how I got my first translation job because there was just not enough uh, Malay trans, I mean, Malay to English translators around. And so a, a, a writer approached me after a kind of academic presentation to ask me, would you translate my book? And so mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, why not, right? I mean, even though I was not trained, so I, I'm in a way an accidental translator in that sense. And so I, I, I think I think many of us are, to be honest. But, but yeah, yeah. But going back to what you said about Malay studies, so right. unlike myself, mm. do you find that you have that validity when it comes to the language you translate from? Mm. In as much when it as when it comes to Malay, it's a language you right. have studied, that's and right. you have an academic um, yeah. footing in. Is is that correct? That's correct, and I think that's the, the a major difference between the way we stumble into translation, mm. I suppose. 
mm-hmm. that um, and you've outlined why you didn't want to do your mother tongues mm-hmm. and I, my, for me it's actually a, a thing that I did study in school I did study I did mm-hmm. not do it as a PhD subject but I've written mm-hmm. uh, you know essays on Malay mm-hmm. literature and stuff like that mm-hmm. yeah so so yeah I feel like maybe a bit more uh, qualified to talk about it and, oh, and that, that's oh, oh, yeah Perhaps even ownership, you could say, of your mother tongue. Definitely ownership of the mother tongue, and and this is where I, I I've been toying with the idea of decolonizing literary translation, and mm. uh, and of course as an academic, I've been you know uh, doing some work on decolonization as well, trying to understand wrap my head around this concept and how that might actually translate to practice. Yeah. So you've yeah. you've you you've set up the perfect flashing light there because whenever <laughs> I hear. Whenever yeah. I hear decolonizing or decolonization, yeah. I, um, I I I, st- I start to kind of well, well, part of my brain starts to 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 fire up because I think, gosh, I really want to understand that. Right. And part of it starts to go a bit foggy and vague because I'm not quite right. sure because those words are bandied about so often nowadays, and because right. to a certain okay. degree, mm-hmm. decolonizing and decolonization have become such buzz and fashionable words. Exactly. I'm not sure that people actually understand what they mean. Mm-hmm. What, what 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 do you mean by them in the sense in when it comes to literary translation? Right. So. So for me, it, it came as a concept that I've uh, come across in academic circles because, I, mm. like I said, I research uh, literary texts. And so even in the academic circles, there are many interpretations of what decolonization means. And certainly, like you are right, that you know, decolonization has become kind of a buzzword and has been void mm. of its meaning. I mean, there's a very good essay by Tuck and Young that is uh, titled uh, Decolonization is not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor for trying to talk about racism, racialism. And so this uh, Tuck and Young are, uh, uh, you know, BIPOC scholars or, uh, you know, minority scholars based in the US. Mm. And they think that when someone does decolonial work, they have to engage with the very purpose of decolonization, which is to return land back to indigenous people. Right, so mm-hmm. it's a very material concern. But in the mm-hmm. case of Gugi uh, Wationgo, for instance, when he wrote that piece called Decolonizing Your Mind in his book, he did talk about how the structures of our thought right, uh, actually uh, map onto the ways in which we learn things. right. And so I think in that sense, for me, what decolonial means or decoloniality means is to kind of rewire the way our mind works in terms of mm. approaching a subject. And so for me, I think as opposed to Tuck and Young, there is value in trying to metaphorize uh, certain levels of uh, uh, decol- decolonial work. So with regards to literary translation, what it means is basically uh, allowing, for me, for me thinking about the translator, allowing the translator not to be invisible, uh, to mm-hmm. render him or herself visible, uh, and to mm-hmm. exercise his or her agency in uh, changing the text, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's uh, the the main focus uh, for me in terms of de- de- decolonizing work. So I've uh, I have a very quick uh, example of how I did that. So one yeah. of the translators I've uh, translated uh, uh, wrote a story about a Malay man falling in love with a Korean woman, and this is a short mm-hmm. story. I think possibly uh, based on his uh, actually real life experience, but in that text mm-hmm. written sometime maybe 20 years ago, uh, you mm-hmm. can detect, uh, you know, a sen- uh, certain, uh, I would say, not misogynistic, but maybe patriarchal mm-hmm. tendencies, which I, as a translator, disagree with. So I find myself, uh, you know, in uh, uh, 
uh, having a conflict with myself as to whether to translate mm-hmm. the story in the first place. So what I did was I uh, played with certain words and I uh, what mm-hmm. I did was I, I kind of turned that story into a bit of a satire so that uh, someone uh, in the in uh, you know of my time and age coming chancing upon that story would think twice about certain the way certain words are used the way certain mm-hmm. phrases are written so i wanted them mm-hmm. to without actually uh, you know changing the essence of the story too much it was difficult but it was a really interesting experience for me that was a decolonial work for me i i thought yeah so and, i don't know if i explained that yeah that that's an aspect i hadn't really thought about which is you know in almost taking let's say taking advantage to a certain degree of the position that you enjoy as a mediator between two languages right. and then you and then using the um i guess the, the cultural baggage that you have mm-hmm. to to intervene and and i guess add add a certain layer of of meaning to to your that's work right. yes yes that's would, right would that yeah. be right yeah that's that's definitely right and i'm actually also for the fact that translators should be like i said in, uh, more visible and in that sense mm. maybe recognized as uh, a kind of uh, uh, as a kind of writer as well as a kind of mm-hmm. author and not to you know talk about fidelity of the text which i think does not exist in the first place and, and i'm actually interested in how you would deal with such situations too like uh, you know being faithful to the original Uh, and you know exercising your agency you know, when you don't when you come across something you disagree with for instance so i i i i i guess if there's something that in a text that i disagree with i i wouldn't see it as my place to mm. to write the wrong that i i see in my head mm. but i would certainly feel it was my place to to make clear mm. what what the issue was um, by dint of the translation okay. i i think that I think what you refer to as the um as the as fidelity is is such a it, it it's it's such a contentious issue and always has been right. but I've actually I've actually kind of made peace with myself on this because I've realized by dint of translating mm. that that there is no that there is no secure footing anywhere because you start with a text mm-hmm. that already in the author's mind could have been any one of a number of variables mm-hmm. and they decided to set down on paper or on the page mm-hmm. one certain it you know um version of that and then for you as the translator when you come to that text mm-hmm. there are multiple multiple versions in your head as to how you could do something and again there's a whole lot of slippage that occurs between that original text and what you finally decide sometimes more by accident or or due to the due to the constraints of time right. that becomes your version so there 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 are there are multiple unexplored avenues wherever mm-hmm. you look you know the original text could have gone in this direction or that direction mm-hmm. it so happened to be like this right. and for you as the mediator and the translator you could have gone in any direction but right. you chose this particular one so i suppose the and it, and it's true that when you start out in translation mm-hmm. you have this ideal in your head this kind of holy grail right. that somewhere of this original text there yeah. exists some pristine beautiful <laughs> you know shining yeah. english version of this that's right um, yeah and that's not true mm-hmm. it's simply not true so we're we're all there's as many translations as there are um translators um so i I, th- i think the ability to get rid of that mm. to get rid of that baggage i think has helped me to 
to mm. deal with it. But can I come back to decolonizing? So yeah. you, you talked about one aspect of that, but mm. is decolonizing not also about mm-hmm. what you said about the vernacular versus English? Is it not about, paradoxically, mm-hmm. making more of the vernacular available in English because by, by mm-hmm. in so doing, yeah. you raise awareness of the fact that people, yeah. that there are texts that exist out there. Yeah. And, so, and so despite the fact that you are contributing to the growth of, 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 you know, of the Anglophone world, mm-hmm. you are also contributing to an awareness of vernacular craft. Is right. that not true? That's definitely true. And I think that's the primary reason why I choose to do maybe Malay classical works uh, to try to, to, you know, make available certain texts from the pre-modern period of the, of the Malay civilization so that uh, students from elsewhere, teachers from elsewhere can engage with them in the same way they engage with the Arabian Nights or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and other classics from other parts of the world. So if you really look, you know, do a survey of the great books kind of courses in the universities, you seldom see a Malay text uh, make an appearance. So I think and that's that's actually part of the end. Uh, my my fellowship at the NCW was to translate an excerpt of the uh, of a Malay classical poem, an epic Malay poem, and mm-hmm. and the issue of like fidelity becomes so important here because it's actually poetic. Uh, it's in its poetic form. It has a strict rhyme structure. And so my original thought was to retain that rhyme structure because I've seen translation in which the rhyme structure has totally disappeared. And I wanted mm. to try to be to have that essence of style. But I realized later on that this is a, 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 you know, an insurmount, insurmountable task that to do. So when I uh, you know, discussed with my mentor, uh, George Sertis, he was suggesting to do a little bit of both to retain some rhyme pattern, but at the same time also be, not be too hard on myself and catch myself in that AAAA style for 7,000 mm. uh, lines or something like that, because that's impossible mm. to do. Right, so so I've learned to try to do to strike a balance in between, yeah, and and that's definitely going back to your point. That's certainly uh, one of the reasons why I the primary reason, in fact, why I do I I do translate from Malay to English is to make available some of these texts that were not available before. Mm. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that I did mention earlier when I talked about the decision in my case, the fact that I don't translate from a heritage language, yeah. is that is that I suppose I also have a sense of guilt now. So I I I feel I sometimes feel that it's wrong that I don't translate in as much as it perhaps is my duty. It it, it it's something that is beholden upon me mm-hmm. to master my language. And I think that's something else that perhaps a lot of us live with, um, mm-hmm. certainly the BAME, BAME translators in the in, in the UK, that mm-hmm. there, there may be this kind of latent sense of of almost having abandoned or dereliction of duty that we should that we should be good at this. And right. isn't isn't it terrible that other people white people are 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 experts at your native language or your that's the wrong word are are experts at your heritage language whereas whereas you're not does is that something you that 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 resonates with you it does resonate with me and it resonates with me because thinking about malay classical work most of it were written or were translated by British colonialists during the uh, mm. colonial period. So there's an issue of maybe a culturalism in terms of like understand mm. uh, translating from within. 
but there's also the issue of time as well because they were translating during the colonial period which is what like 19th century 20th century early 20th century late you know yeah and so and and we're living in the 21st century and what things could have been so that's why i advocate for a kind of uh agency of the translator uh, not mm. to maybe right or wrong, uh, but mm. to you know to kind of like speak to modern sensibilities. Uh, yeah, so that's how I would actually look at the colonial translation work. Mm. Yeah, do 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 you find that through the work that you're doing and and your peers are doing, mm. that there is a growing awareness of the fact that um, that there are literatures out there which have been hitherto undiscovered, and therefore that you feel you're contributing towards that greater democratization of, of the, it's, it's, not more to, it's not to do with language, it's more to do with content of, of mm-hmm. literatures that, that really haven't had enough exposure. Right. I do feel like that. And I, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that this could actually be uh, something that I'm contributing to the world. But uh, honestly, it's just not me, myself doing it. Indonesian mm-hmm. literature, for instance, have been uh, more and more uh, recognized uh, mm-hmm. ever since the Frankfurt Book Fair, in which there was a huge translation kind of uh, uh, mm-hmm. endeavor going on uh, uh, with mm-hmm. regards to Indonesia uh, being the country of uh, focus uh, some years mm-hmm. ago. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that this is happening and it's actually a very positive move. But what I fear uh, or what I would like to guard against is the fact that we are translating for the sake of uh, presenting a certain culture. So it becomes mm-hmm. a piece of journalistic writing. And, and so people take up the book just because they want to try to get a taste of that culture. I, mm-hmm. I, I want to present the culture in its fullest you know, form, in its nuances. And I think that's a challenge because it has to do with the Anglophone market as well. right? And what, what are the tastes of the Anglophone audience out there? Uh, whether they want to read because they want to feel more diverse in their mm. in their taste and stuff like that. So I, I don't know if this is something that you experience or have thought about as well. That that is so true. It's it's uncanny how you've hit the nail on the head there, Nasri, because one of my fears about if I take it, my particular case in that South Asia and India, mm. um, you're right that there is a certain fashion and a certain taste for a certain kind of book that comes out of India. Mm. Um that, for lack of a better word, that 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 feeds an appetite for exoticism. Okay, mm-hmm. and 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 as 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 you say, as you rightly say, all of our cultures are are nuanced in so many ways. And perhaps one of the obstacles to an understanding of of Asian cultures and Asian vernaculars mm-hmm. is this appetite for the exotic has um, has perhaps then come to be the expectation that by dipping into a book translated from the vernacular language or a book that's written by an author from one of those countries, you are somehow buying a slice of that, that otherness. And yet there's so much more to, to those cultures, which is no different to the same issues that you would experience mm-hmm. um, in, 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 in Western culture, but which never gets exposed because the, your attention mm-hmm. and the expectation and the commercial expectation mm-hmm. is entirely soaked up by presenting this, you know, um, mysterious, mythical, exotic, oriental, to use yeah. a very loaded word, this mm-hmm. oriental word, world, which, which maybe sells books. Right, that's right. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And this is uh, something that I have to be mindful about um, when I when I do my work. Yeah. Um, but I, by the same token, I think um, 
I really think that without having translators mm-hmm. of colour involved in that, mm-hmm. um, the kind of conversation that you're having now, you and I are having now, just 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 wouldn't occur. So I, th- I think it, the more voices involved in this, mm-hmm. the the better. Yeah. I, I I know a lot of people listening to this will be new or emerging literary right. um, translators. Mm-hmm. How how did how did you begin your journey and and what advice would you give to other aspiring mm-hmm. literary translators, whether they're translators of color or not? Are there right. are there things that you could looking back now would say? Mm-hmm. Do you know what that was such a great step because because I did that I, I was able to mm-hmm. kind of make progress. Right. So for me, I think what I would uh, tell a new emerging translator is to, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but to really uh, do what you're most passionate about, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever causes that you feel strongly for, or uh, mm-hmm. maybe even just a simple text that you think someone needs to know more about. I think I cannot stress this enough. So I've, uh, I've, I've followed kind of this advice in my own journey. I've taken on many different texts. I've translated I've subtitled, uh, you know, uh, films and stuff like that. So I'm not just a literary translator. Sometimes mm. I also translate non-fictional texts because I feel like mm. uh, this is important just to hone my, my craft, but at the same time to kind of explore which of mm. the genres I love most. And I think I'm most comfortable with prose and I'm most comfortable with short stories. I mean, I'm trying my hand at poetry, mm. which is really tough, but... Uh, but I'm I'm very you know I'm very at home when translating um, you know prose. What what would you say to a new and emerging translator? I um I I echo what you've just said. Um and 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 when you are starting out, you have to really be open to all kinds of 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 um, of genres and styles because it's a competitive market and and you have to you have to make make headway. Um, so there's a pragmatic side to this. It's not always about you being choosy about what you do. There has to be a real element of practicality to um, mm-hmm. to, to forging a career. Mm-hmm. I, I've been pleasantly surprised by the fact that when, I, when I've been given a piece of work to do and I've worked on it, I, I've been really um, um, taken aback by firstly how much I've enjoyed it because I think if you enjoy something that it means that you will obviously de facto put, put a lot more energy into that because you can feel that it's giving something back. Yeah. Um, and, and I've also been um, surprised by the, um, by my adaptability. Um, yeah. So as you say, fiction, nonfiction, all of those are things that you need to be really open to. Um, and, and also I think certainly in order to make headway, what I found helpful is to, um, is to be open to, to conversations, so the mm-hmm. kind of conversation that we're having now, right. a conversation um, at a workshop, at a conference, um, there are all sorts of things that can give you um, a hint as to what your next step potentially could be. Mm-hmm. So to give you an example, the um, mm-hmm. the National Centre for Writing and the, the residency, the one that you're doing, and I'm actually going to be doing one later this year, which I'm really looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those have come about, I suppose, by by dint of me being more open mm-hmm. to to hearing what others have to say mm-hmm. and to feeling that I too have have an opinion or mm-hmm. a point of view to contribute. Mm-hmm. And I guess that only comes with maturity and 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 with time. You know, it's not something that it's not something that happens on day one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly learned that that if you stick at something, mm-hmm. something normally develops. 
Mm-hmm. And if you stick at something, it must be because you're interested. Otherwise, you would have given up a long time ago. That's right. Yeah, and translation is that act in which you need to keep going back to it, right? So absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, what do they say? Translations never finished, merely abandoned, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I've heard that before. Your heroic poem or the, the the Malay text that you're working on. When 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 are you hoping to get that finished? Well, uh, I'm hoping to get that finished in about uh, a month or so. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm, that's the other struggle is to find time while working full time and doing a mm-hmm. virtual residency. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about it. So that means mm-hmm. that I'll keep going, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I hope to, yeah, to to keep to the deadline. What will you be doing at your uh, virtual residency? That's that's a brilliant question. <laughs> I hope you would ask me that because I don't quite know as yet. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd love to explore some of the issues we've discussed today. So it's been wonderful to have the chance to hear your take on, on issues to do with colonialism and colour and translation. We've only scratched the surface, but it's it, it, it's been a very um, inspirational um, opportunity to hear from, from you what, and what, you, what, your, what your view is on that. So I'd like to explore some of those issues. Like you, I also have work to do. I have, I have a translation project on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll be working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also like to engage with other BAME, BIPOC, people of colour mm-hmm. who work in translation in the UK and elsewhere um, to tease out a bit more about what are the, what are the obstacles that prevent mm-hmm people from certain communities working in translation. We haven't even discussed the issue of economics and it's, it makes total sense that when you come from a culture where the expectation is that you become a scientist or an engineer or a doctor or a dentist or an accountant, because that's entirely sensible and you'll have a really good salary. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the notion of starting to work on something which is so fluid and unstable is understandably um, not your first choice, I suppose. Yeah, um, certainly frowned upon. Yeah, yeah, I understand that that uh, that kind of pressure to do something uh, worthwhile. Although I think translation is very worthwhile. Right? It's totally worthwhile. It's <laughs> it's yeah. It's and uh, um, there's no greater pleasure, is there, than crafting something mm-hmm. and to have something exist that never existed before because of your agency. That's right. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. That's the coloniality to me. Yeah. It is. It is. It's. It's. It's almost a benign coloniality, isn't it? Or that's colonialism. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Nasi, yeah. Nasi, an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And, and to you too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for yours. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening, and many thanks to Vinit and Nasri. If you have questions about this or anything else that we're doing, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. You can find us on Facebook and you can join our weekly newsletter by heading over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and signing up. We also have a lovely Discord community of writers and readers, which you can find a link to down in the show notes or indeed over on the website. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can show your support for the podcast and for National Centre for Writing by heading over to the National Centre for Writing website and making a donation by clicking on the Support Us button. Please do follow the podcast and leave a rating and a review. It really helps other people to find it. Thanks again for listening. Do keep writing and we will catch you next week. Mm